Well, I would ask you to please turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there's lots of them in the seats in front of you. We have two different editions. So it's going to be either page 924 or page 983. Colossians chapter 1. And we come again to this great letter, this great portion of God's Word. Uh, Paul has opened his letter in verses 3 to 14 by, first of all, thanking God for his fruitful work among the Colossian believers, and then he goes on to explain to them how it is he's praying for them. And then now in verses 15 to 20, the text that we're going to look at this morning, uh, Paul really is declaring a Christ-exalting anthem, what is likely a hymn extolling the glorious Christ. And so I want to read our text, and I'm going to actually begin in verse 13 just to give a little bit of context that leads into this anthem of praise concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's hear God's eternal and inerrant and unchanging word beginning in verse 13 of Colossians 1. He, which is referring there to the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness was of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is the living word of our living God. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. Our God and Father, even as Paul prayed for the Colossians, we ask that you would now fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, fully pleasing him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, and that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And as you have in your spirit given us your word, please help us now to these ends and help me in faithfully proclaiming your truth as you have given it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, as we come to this passage this morning, there are lots of things that I am thankful for, but I am thankful in particular for the blessing of modern optometry. Optometry, you know, the science and the profession that examines eyesight and provides corrective lenses 
so that we can see things clearly and accurately. If I didn't have these glasses that I am wearing right now, if I didn't have them, I would be in serious trouble. It's a little bit of a joke because I can't see very well without my glasses. I would be in serious trouble. When I take these off, you're all just a bunch of fuzzy body images. I can't distinguish faces. If I didn't have these glasses, my view of everything, and this is true I know for many of you as well, would be greatly distorted and diminished. If I didn't have these glasses, my vision of reality would be totally messed up. And I would have a hard time functioning. Things like reading, things like driving, things like mowing my grass, and thousands of other daily issues of life I would have difficulty with if I didn't have these glasses. Being able to have them and have clear vision impacts every part of my life, as it does for every single one of us. And in a spiritual sense, friends, what an illustration that is of how essential it is for every single one of us to have a clear and an accurate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's very easy and it's very common for us to have distorted or diminished views of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's very easy for us to become preoccupied with lots of other things in our lives. Our present circumstances, past issues, future issues, our possessions, our relationships, our needs, our troubles, our desires, our opinions, and a host of other things can easily preoccupy us in ways that diminish and distort our vision of the Lord Jesus. And even if we have and and yearn for allegiance to him, we can subtly in our minds sort of domesticate our vision of who he really is, viewing him simply as someone to help us with all of our problems and all of our longings. And what happens with that is that we can easily and subtly embrace false worldly ways of thinking that in the end diminish and distort the Lord Jesus Christ. And such worldly influences are what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, what he's concerned about for these Colossian believers, even as God is concerned for every single one of us, that we would not be wrongly influenced by worldly realities in ways that would diminish, distort, or even domesticate our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then a few statements later, down in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so you see the burden of Paul's whole letter is for God's people to walk with a right and a robust vision of our Lord Jesus. In other words, to have a clear and an accurate view of him. 
And in so doing, to not shift away from the stable and steadfast um, faith in which we have hope in the gospel. And you see, it's true, friends, in the same way that physically in this earth we are always vulnerable to germs that would bring illnesses and disease. Likewise, spiritually, we are always vulnerable to plausible arguments, as Paul calls them, uh, and worldly and deceitful philosophies and ways of thinking that would enslave us with distorted, diminished, and domesticated views of Jesus. And you see, if our vision of Jesus is messed up, then that's going to mess up everything else in our daily lives. And so God's word in the passage before us this morning, verses 15 to 20, is really like a spiritual pair of glasses, if you will, to make our vision of the reality of Jesus very, very clear in knowing who he is. Now, as I mentioned, in these verses, Paul is really singing of the glorious Christ. It's an anthem. It is a hymn. And his words were likely, likely already known somewhat in the early church as a hymn. And the melody of this Christ-exalting anthem really echoes throughout Paul's entire letter. And even more, just like certain songs in our own lives can kind of get stuck in our minds and we can find ourselves singing them throughout the day. I believe God wants these truths to penetrate and to capture and to consume us. And so through Paul, God wants us who are his people, he wants all people to have a clear vision of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. And that's really at the heart of, of what this whole section of verses is about. That's what the big idea is, the main truth that we find in verses 15 to 20. It is this. All things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That's the big idea of what Paul is saying here. Now, his Christ-magnifying hymn really contains two parallel stanzas that extol the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two parallel stanzas reveal two different arenas where the preeminence of Christ is always present and active. First of all, in the first stanza, which encompasses verses 15 to 17, we see the preeminence of Christ in creation. The preeminence of Christ in creation. And then the second stanza, which is verses 18 to 20, is where we see his preeminence in the arena of the church, the preeminence of Jesus in the church. So that's going to form the, the structure, the focus as it unfolds in the text of what we'll see this morning, the preeminence of Christ in creation, the preeminence of Christ in the church. And because he's preeminent everywhere, this is why all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into the text in detail and explore these two arenas, I want to make three quick observations about what we find here. First of all, what holds these two stanzas together, which reveal these two arenas of creation and the church, is Paul's statement there in verse 17. 
Look at what he says there. He says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that statement is really central in the structure of the passage itself. And Jesus is, of course, central as the sovereign and sustaining creator of all creation and the church. And so that statement not only holds the passage together, if you will, but it's expressing the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ holds everything together. So that's the first observation for us to see. And then second of all, speaking of all things, that phrase, all things, or simply the word all, is used 18, or not 18, eight different times by Paul in these few verses. And what he's doing is he's emphatically emphasizing of the totality of Jesus's supremacy and preeminence, the totality of it. You've heard it said, all means all, and that's all that all means. It's emphatic, and it's speaking of the totality of the rule and the reign, the supremacy and the sufficiency, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then the third observation I would highlight is that in both stanzas, first in verses 15 to 17, and then next in verses 18 to 20, in both of those stanzas, Paul first speaks about Jesus's identity, and then he speaks about Jesus's work. So first his identity, and then next his work. And I'm going to highlight that as we move along. You'll see how that unfolds, but I just want you to note that as we get into it. So let's dive into the passage itself and hear and see what it is that God has for us. So first of all, this first arena of Christ's preeminent, that he is preeminent in creation. And let me read verses 15 to 17 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, first of all, there in verse 15, Paul starts this hymn by speaking of Jesus's identity, describing him in two different ways. First of all, he says he is the image of the invisible God. And then second, he says he is the firstborn of all creation. He's speaking of Jesus's identity, his status. Jesus incarnate, he says, in being the image of the invisible God, is the visible, exact revelation and representation of God and his will. That's what he means by image. And the word that's used here from image is where we get our English word icon. It is something that looks like that represents something else. And it's the same in the same sense that mankind, as we learn in Genesis chapter one, is being has been made in God's image. That's sort of the sense of what Paul is talking about here with respect to Jesus. However, Because Jesus is uncreated, because he is eternal and now incarnate, he fully and perfectly images God. He's the full and perfect representation, revelation of God. 
And this corresponds to other truths that we find other places in Scripture. For instance, John chapter 1, verse 18, we hear that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's referring to the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and Wilson quoted this earlier, uh, we read that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, it's interesting in Colossians, a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 10, as Paul is in the context there of exhorting believers to put off the old self and to put on the new self in Christ, He says there in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 3 that this new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And that's the same word for image that he uses in chapter 1 verse 15. And what we see in all of this then is that Jesus Christ is the uncreated, eternal, perfect image of God in which human beings were created and are now being restored by God through salvation. That Jesus is the exact representation, the exact revelation of the fullness of God. Well, the second part of Jesus' identity that Paul goes on to declare in verse 15 there is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was created first, Because we know emphatically from from the whole of Scripture that Jesus is uncreated. He's the uncreated creator, even as Paul is going to go on to emphatically explain in, in our passage. But no, to use this language of firstborn is to speak of preeminence. That's the sense of being firstborn. It refers to that which is of greatest importance and significance. And so this speaks of Jesus' supreme status and rank over all creation. And even in the Greco-Roman context of Paul's day, uh, to speak of the firstborn was a legal term that referred to the child in the family who was the legal heir of the father's inheritance. And thus, as such, he was the one was with power and authority over the father's household once the father was gone. And so for Paul here, by identifying Jesus as firstborn of all creation, he's saying that Jesus is the one with supreme status, power, and authority over all. He's the one who is supreme. He is the firstborn. Well, that's his identity. That is his status. He's perfectly in the image of God, revealing the the fullness of who God is, and he's the firstborn. He's the one in preeminence over all creation. Well, then uh, we go on to read in verses 16 and 17, and Paul speaks about Jesus's work, which further explains and, and identifies his identity and demonstrates his identity. So he says in verse 16, for by him all things were created. There's his work. He was involved in all of creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
And a little bit later in chapter 2, Paul's going to make reference to rulers and authorities in a couple of places again. But he goes on to say here at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. And he, verse 17, is before all things and in him all things hold together. And Paul's emphatic, comprehensive language here reveals Jesus to be the sovereign and supreme, uncreated creator of everything and everyone. Jesus is the one by whom everything exists and through whom everything holds together, through whom everything is sustained. The reason our world has not blown apart, the reason the universe has not blown apart, the reason that we haven't killed each other off yet, though we would be prone to do so, is because Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all. And this has to do with everything in the heavens, all spiritual powers and authorities, and everything on the earth as well, all that is visible, all that is invisible. And so over everything that exists, Everything that exists in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether spiritual or earthly, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority, Jesus forever says, mine. It's mine, and I'm in charge, and I rule. Jesus is the sovereign, supreme, unchanging authority. And again, let me just read a little bit more from Hebrews chapter 1, where God, through the writer there, speaks of these same things. Verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews chapter 1, we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is Jesus preeminent over his creation. You and I live and exist and we breathe because of Jesus, because he upholds the universe. Now, Jesus's preeminence over all of his creation, think about this, was demonstrated, was illustrated constantly throughout his earthly ministry as it's recorded in the Gospels. He spoke the very words of the Father with absolute sovereign authority. And all the works of the Father that he did, he did with the same absolute sovereign authority. Casting out demons, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, calming the storms, feeding the multitudes, and raising the dead. You know why he did that? Because he's preeminent over all of his creation. He has sovereign authority and supremacy over all of his creation. Everything exists and is held together. It is sustained by his sovereign purpose and power. And that's why it is, friends, that all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see what this means for you and for me 
is that because Jesus Christ is preeminent in his creation, with him being the creator and the sustainer of all that is, what that means is that every single one of us is inescapably accountable to him. And he created us in his image to know him, to trust him, to worship him, and to obey him, and to find our very identity in his identity as the preeminent one. And you see, for those who have come to faith in Christ and been reconciled to God through him, and brought into the fullness of all of his blessings, and he now inhabits us and dwells us through the Holy Spirit, we can obey his good and his wise commands. And we can submit to and persevere in his good and wise providences in our lives, even when it involves pain, because we know he is faithful to all of his purposes and to all of his promises as he's revealed in his word. And we can depend upon him in prayer to provide all that we need every step along the way because so he has promised and he's the one who rules and who reigns over all. Beloved, he who is supreme is therefore sufficient always for all that we need day to day. So whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our, in, our, in our life in the local church or with other believers beyond our local church, whether it's in the world, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's with our health or our school or our finances or whatever it may be, do you see and understand all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ, His will, His purposes, His work, His glory, and all of His redeeming purposes for us. It's all about him. Well, that's the first arena, that Jesus is preeminent in creation. And that leads to what Paul goes on to say in the second arena in verses 18 to 20, that Jesus Christ is preeminent in the church. And I'll read these verses again, beginning in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we see that as the Lord Jesus is preeminent in his creation, so he is preeminent in his new creation, namely the church. He's preeminent in the redemption and in the reconciliation that he has accomplished through the blood of his cross, uh, through which he has created his church. And it's in this second stanza of Paul's hymn, like the first, that he first begins by speaking of Jesus's identity. That's what he's addressing in verses 18 and 19. And then he speaks of Jesus's work in verse 20. So let's look at these again in just a little bit of detail. First, his identity, his status in verses 18 and 19. He says clearly at the beginning of verse 18, he is the head. He is the head of the body, the church. Now this language and this word picture, this metaphor of what the church is likened to a physical body, we find many other places in Scripture. 
Paul speaks about it earlier in Romans and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He'll speak about it more here in the book of Colossians. He also speaks about it and uses that language repeatedly in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, of course, in that picture and in the metaphor, the head is the command center. The head is the one who is supreme, the one in preeminent authority and power. It is the head that governs and that guides the rest of the body. It is in our heads, the command center, where the control of the body takes place. And it provides for the life and the sustenance of the body. And so what a picture it is that Jesus is the head. He is the living head, the active head, the true head, the only head of his body, the church. And then Paul goes on to say there in verse 18, he is, the begin- he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, just like he used that term firstborn in verse 15, he's not talking about that which is first in chronological order, but again, first in importance and significance, first in preeminence. Now, we know from both the Old and the New Testament that other human beings were raised by God from the dead. In the New Testament, we might think about Lazarus in particular, as we're told in John chapter 11. And there were people in the Old Testament, there were others in the New Testament that were raised from the dead. But only Jesus Christ was raised from the dead never to die again. He rose from the dead. He's now ascended into heaven, the eternal Son of God, fully, truly God, fully, truly man in the mystery of the incarnation. He rose from the dead, never to die again. And so his resurrection, following the blood of his cross, which is speaking of his substitutionary death, His resurrection means the hope of eternal life for all who trust him. It means the hope of our own resurrection if we belong to him through faith. Now think about this fact, friends, even as you think about these statements here in Colossians chapter 1. The fact of Jesus' death and resurrection, it implicitly indicates that his good creation had been corrupted by the presence of sin, and it brought God's curse of death because of that sin. And so his death and resurrection has reversed the effect of of the curse of sin and death for all who believe on him. That's why he's preeminent. In other words, his good creation had become corrupted, it had become broken, it had become fractured and alienated from God. But he's reversed all of that through his life, death, and resurrection. Well, then Paul goes on to say in verse 19, continuing to speak of his identity, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what this statement seems to mean, it's a little bit complicated in the Greek. There's a lot of debate throughout church history about the full meaning of all that is spoken of here in these brief words. But it seems to be indicating that God chose to manifest and inhabit his fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this further amplifies how it is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as Paul began this section by saying in verse 15. And in other words, even as he speaks of God dwelling in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. This is in the same manner that God was pleased for his presence and his glory to dwell in the old covenant, first in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple that was built. And so now in the new covenant, he has chosen, he is pleased for his radiant fullness to dwell in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's what we heard earlier spoken of in John chapter 1 and also in Hebrews chapter 1. And so then here what Paul goes on to say a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, he'll sort of echo this again when he says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God has revealed himself and been pleased to have his fullness dwell and be revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is his identity. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's his identity. That's his status. Well, then he goes on in verse 20 to speak about his work. And so he says in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so he's clearly speaking of Jesus' work of reconciliation, whereby he has brought about, through the blood of the cross, peace. He's brought about the restoration of fellowship between sinful people and a holy God. And the war that such sinful people, just like every single one of us, had waged against God. That it's through the blood of Jesus' cross, it's through his substitutionary death that he brought about peace for all who would believe on him. Now, Paul is not talking here, by the way, about universalism. You know, the idea that in the end, everybody is going to be saved. That's not what he's talking about when he says that he has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What he means is that through the work of Christ, in concert with all that God had designed and intended, he's brought about restoration of all of God's original creational purposes. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to be saved because even in the context of the whole letter, he's concerned that even some of these Colossians might drift away from the hope of the gospel. And in chapter 3, he speaks about the wrath of God that is upon those who are in rebellion against God and who don't repent from their rebellion against God. So he's not talking about universalism. He's talking about the restoration of God's original design and purpose that encompasses the reconciliation of people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it ultimately leads to the coming of the new heavens and the new earth that will come to full fruition when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, Paul has already spoken about this reconciliation in terms of redemption, In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, at the end of how he tells them how he's praying, he says in verse 13 that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the, or I'm sorry, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
That's all intertwined with this sense of reconciliation. In fact, after our passage, if you look down to verses 21 and 22, Paul's going to say more about this reconciliation. He says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And we're going to look at that passage in more detail next week, Lord willing. But you see that that's a statement of every human being outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Alienated, hostile, an evildoer who is separated from God. But it's in Christ and through Christ and trusting him that we know reconciliation. The forgiveness of our sins, redemption, the deliverance from our sin and from God's judgment. And so in verse 20, the point that Paul is emphasizing is that this reconciliation has occurred through the peace that Christ accomplished by his death, by the blood of his cross. And Paul's going to say more about this in other places in Colossians, even as he speaks of it in other places throughout his other letters as well. For instance, you could look at Romans chapter 5 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or Ephesians chapter 2 to see Paul say more about this reconciliation that has been accomplished through the peace that Jesus secured through his blood. Beloved, Jesus Christ is preeminent in the church because he purchased the church. You and I and everyone who belong to him through faith, he purchased us through his own his own blood. And this is God's good design and will. And again, this is why then all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, the church is the fruit of Christ's work of redemption and reconciliation. And again, all that will culminate when he returns and ushers in the new creation with the new heavens and the new earth. We are already the seeds of that, if you will, for those who belong to him. And I think we can rightly understand the church here, both in its universal sense of comprising all believers everywhere, but also in its local expression, even as Paul is writing to a local church of believers in the city of Colossae. Well, what this ultimately means is that our identity, our significance, our usefulness, our purpose is bound up in having union with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's bound up in being rightly connected to the head of the body. Think about it with our own physical bodies. Any and every part of our physical body is only as useful and significant as, the, as significant as the extent to which it functions in connection to our head. Our head is the command center. Our head is where we make decisions. Our head is where we decide if we're going to point our hand out here or out here or just a million other things that we do without even really thinking about it a lot of times. It all happens because of what goes on in the command center. And if any part of the body is severed from the body, the identity, the usefulness is lost. And if the entire body is severed from the head, the identity and the usefulness is lost. And so our identity and significance and usefulness is deeply connected with, inextricably connected with, our union with Jesus Christ, the head. 
And so this matter of reconciliation that Christ has accomplished and why he now is the head of his body of those who have been so reconciled, it begs the question, have you been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Or, in the language of what Paul says in verse 21 there, are you alienated from God? Are you hostile in your mind? Are you an evildoer, meaning that you're not living for God's glory? You're not living to honor and please and obey Him. Are you alienated, hostile, and an evildoer, doing what you want in the way that you think it ought to be done? Or are you eager to know Him and to trust Him and to walk with Him? You see, this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, through his death, and only through his death, has brought about peace for all who would believe on him because he satisfied the wrath of God for every sin that we ever have, ever are, ever will commit. It's all bound up. It's all paid for. Even as we sung earlier, Jesus paid it all. And so only those who trust him can know the forgiveness of our sins, can know freedom from the penalty and the power of our sin, can know reconciliation, the restoration of fellowship with our creator. And if you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've never bowed the knee, if you've never given up the fight, friend, now is the day of salvation. Call out to him even now in your heart where you're seated and say, Lord, save me. I need to be forgiven. I need to be reconciled. And if you have been, and if you do belong to God through faith, friend, this is the hope of the gospel. And this is why we need to continually have a clear vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and continually to have our minds washed and cleansed and realigned with the truth of who he is as revealed in God's word so that we could grow and be strengthened in this faith. And to continue to press into, if you will, the fullness of God in Christ by pressing into his design and his purpose for what it means to be a part of the body. For what it means to have union with him and union with others and how that is lived out in a local church and and extending to others and seeking to bear faithful witness to see others come to faith in Christ. Well, so what we see in this passage, friend, as I've said, friends, as I've said, is that all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're always about the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of Jesus's identity and work, he is and always will be preeminent in his creation and preeminent in his church. As I said earlier as well, he who is always supreme is always sufficient. He's always sufficient. And you see, when your vision and my vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, when it is right and when it is robust, and when it is in accordance with all that God has revealed of Jesus in his word, then everything else in our lives comes into focus. Now, this doesn't mean that All of our circumstances and situations will always make sense to us, far from it. But it means that Jesus will make more and more sense to us as we embrace him as he is revealed in God's word. And it means that we'll be all the more able to trust him, all the more able to worship him, all the more able to obey him and to submit to him in whatever he ordains for us. Because you see, Jesus is the reality 
who defines all reality. And if we have a deepening, clearer vision of who he is, again, everything else comes into focus. But at the same time, if our vision of who he is is diminished or distorted, again, even domesticated, then we're going to have a diminished and distorted and a dangerous understanding of reality. And so that's why this matter of our vision is so vitally important. Well, how do we respond to all of this? Well, that's what Paul addresses in verses 21 to 23. And as I mentioned, that's what we're going to look at at in next week, Lord willing, in a bit more detail. But for now, look at what he says in verse 23 of chapter 1. He says, of all of these things, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, the very fact that Paul is burdened and concerned that the believers could not find themselves stable and steadfast, that they could shift away from the hope of the gospel, suggests that that is possible for every single one of us. And so God wants us to have a clear vision of Jesus. This is why Paul prays for the believers as he tells them how he prays in chapter 1. And really, the burden and the passion of Paul, I think he summarizes it in a very concise way in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And in many ways, this is sort of the epicenter of his entire letter. Listen to what he says there, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the heart of his burden for God's people, the heart of God for every one of us. And so how Christ's glorious preeminence is over all things, this should constantly impact our lives, beloved. Should impact how we pray, should impact how we walk, how we work, should impact what we hope for, should impact how we speak, and it will impact how we die. And even as Paul sang this hymn of the glorious Christ in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, how much more ought we then who belong to him to constantly and passionately, in the words of Paul in chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. The issue isn't whether or not we can sing. The issue is whether or not we have a song. Let me lead us in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for, for the full song that you have given to all whom you've brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To see him ever more fully and clearly as he is, as you've revealed in your word, to know him and to worship him and to trust him and to obey him, as you enable us to do so by your spirit, that we might bring glory to you in the fullness of all that you are. Well, Father, may you be pleased to bring these things to bear in the lives of each one who hears these words. Lord, that your fruit might be produced for their joy and thanksgiving to overflow and for you to be glorified in all of this. We thank you in the name of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.